Well, as was mentioned, this is our final psalm that we're going to be tackling, at least on this run through the Psalter. We didn't want to do all 150 psalms in one uh, consecutive series because that would have just been long. So we're breaking it up. Uh, There's five books in the Psalter, and we are now today completing book one of the Psalter. And so it's been a, a great series, but I'm excited to be able to move back next week into the New Testament and study one of Paul's epistles as was mentioned, uh, the book of Colossians. So looking forward to getting into that next week. I don't know what kind of psalm you feel would be an appropriate conclusion to book one of the Psalter, but there definitely is a certain level of appropriateness to the topic that's covered here in Psalm chapter 41. Because here in Psalm 41, what David, the author, does is he composes a prayer. He composes a psalm here that is dealing with the topic of sickness. And that is a fitting end to our studies through the Psalms because, after all, sickness has been on our minds a lot over the last 19 months. I have to confess that I have never in my life thought so much about illness and sickness as I have over the last 19 months. And you probably haven't either. There are so many different reminders and things that are reinforcing the reality of illness and disease whether it's masks that people are wearing, whether it's the COVID case counts or fatality counts that are updated every single day, or the kind of wall-to-wall news coverage that we've had dealing with the pandemic for the last 19 months. But the fact of the matter is, sickness has always been and will always be a part of human existence. Most of us just don't give it much thought unless we ourselves are really sick or somebody that we really love is sick. One of the things that's so great about the Psalms, though, is that the Psalms bring us into a a sort of an intimate look at so many of life's experiences, whether we're ready for it or not. And they give us the tools and the resources that we need to process those experiences in ways that are healthy and in ways that are God-honoring. Now, the prayer here in Psalm 41 is likely a prayer that David prayed after he had recovered already from a serious illness. In fact, if you look at verses 11 through 13, David there is offering praise and thanksgiving to the Lord, which sort of supports that idea, that David had already recovered when he wrote Psalm 41. Also, before we get into the text, just notice the superscription at the top. It tells us that eventually this prayer about sickness was turned into a song about sickness that the Israelites would have sung. The superscription says, to the choir master, a psalm of David. So this thing that was originally a prayer of David's regarding sickness was taken by the worship leader, the Danny in Israel, and turned into music that God's people would have sung together. Now I was thinking about it, and I was thinking, how do you write a song about sickness? Like, what does a song about sickness look like or sound like? It seems to me that a song about sickness would maybe be slow and sort of somber and sad. Well, we have no idea what this song sounded like when it was sung in the temple among God's people. However, the end of the psalm ends on a high note, so it is possible that it at least ended a little bit more upbeat. Regardless, we know that it was a prayer that became a song in Israel for God's people. And I titled the sermon today, A Song for the Sick. Now there's three main parts to the psalm. Verses 1 through 3 are the first section. 
Then verses 4 through 10 are the second section. And then finally, we have verses 11 through 13. So we're going to take the psalm in order here. Verses 1 through 3, the idea there in these three verses is a blessing for the considerate. A blessing for the considerate. Let's look at these verses again. David writes, Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As I mentioned, this psalm was likely written after David had already recovered from a serious sickness. And in this psalm, he's reflecting back on that time when he was sick. And he's actually going to share some of what he prayed to God while he was sick in verses 4 through 10. But first, David starts off the psalm by pronouncing a blessing on the person who is considerate. Now, we can understand why this was on David's heart and mind as he's reflecting back on his own time of sickness when we look at what David writes in verses 5 through 9. Essentially there, David was dealing with some terribly inconsiderate people who were around him during his bout with sickness. Now, Psalm 41 is not the only psalm that opens up with a blessing pronounced. In fact, some of you will remember, Psalm 1 famously starts that way as well. Psalm 1 begins, blessed is the man. And now Psalm 41 begins, blessed is the one. And so what's interesting is when you think about book one of the Psalter, which again is Psalm 1 through Psalm 41, this kind of idea of a blessing being pronounced on someone bookends uh, the first book of the Psalter. In Psalm 1, it begins with a blessing on the person who loves God's word, right? If you go back to Psalm 1, it's this person who delights in the law of the Lord day and night. And David there pronounces this blessing on the person who loves God's word. In Psalm 41, David now pronounces a blessing on the person who lives God's word. The person who's actually being considerate to the poor. The person who's actually living out their faith. And this is really important to hold these two ideas together because it's not enough to just have certain feelings about God's word. Like, oh man, I, I really love the Bible. I enjoy this book or this is really interesting to read. I love the Bible. What really matters is that our love for the word of God manifests itself in us living the word of God. It's sort of like working out. It doesn't really do much good if you love the idea of working out. If you say, oh, I, I follow fitness gurus on Instagram and I love to watch all of their videos of them working out and I understand the concepts around working out. And I even love working out so much I bought a gym membership. Well, all of that actually does nothing for you if you don't go and work out. You have to put these things into practice. And again, these two psalms are kind of bookending book one to say to us, yes, God blesses the person who loves his word, but ultimately it's the person who loves God's word and lives out the word of God. And specifically, the way that the person in Psalm chapter 41 is living out or applying the word of God is that they're considerate of the poor. He says, blessed is the one who considers the poor. Now, just a word here about the poor. In the Old Testament, 
The poor is sort of a catch-all word for the literal poor, people who are destitute. They don't have money or resources. So sometimes in certain contexts, it's used for the literal poor, the way we think of the word poor. But in other contexts, it carries a broader idea of a person who is powerless or a person who is weak or a person who is vulnerable or oppressed. The idea of this Hebrew word in the Old Testament is is essentially the poor is a person who does not have the resources that they need to help themselves in in a time of trouble. And so when we look at the context of Psalm 41 then, we understand that when David says, blessed is the one who is considerate or considers the poor, what David here has in mind is the sick and the needy. So David writes, blessed is the one who considers the sick and needy. And you'll notice that in these three verses, there's this amazing catalog of blessings that God promises to the person who is considerate of the sick and the needy. I'll just rattle them off for you. They should come up on the screen here. But in verse 1, God promises to deliver them. In verse 2, God protects them and he keeps them alive. Also in verse 2, God gives them a place in the community since others call him blessed in the land. Lastly, in verse 2, God does not give them up to the will of their enemies. And then finally, in verse 3, David even writes that God sustains them through their own bouts with sickness and God restores their health to them. So this is pretty incredible. David says, blessed is the person who is considerate of the sick and the vulnerable and the needy. And God will bless them in these remarkable ways because they are this considerate person. Now, it sounds here like God's blessing is sort of automatic. What I mean by that is it sounds like what David is teaching us in this prayer is that if you are considerate or if you do the right thing, if you care for other people, then God automatically blesses you. And I know for us Christians here today, it's troubling to think that way. Because we know from the whole counsel of God's word that the thing that God ultimately honors, the thing that God ultimately blesses, is not our works, but our faith. That faith is the thing that God promises blessing as a response to. Not only that, this is troubling because we know that God is not bound to do anything. And so sometimes moral people, good people, and considerate people actually have a really hard time, and bad things happen to them. So what do we do with that here in these first three verses? Well, first, we need to remember how Hebrew wisdom literature works. We've talked about this before. But Hebrew wisdom teaching articulates general principles for living in God's world, but does not teach necessarily ironclad promises. The Hebrew sages were well aware that just like in God's physical universe, there are physical laws here like general relativity or the second law of thermodynamics. They recognize that God's universe is also a moral universe. And so there are moral laws and principles that are at work in God's universe, such as you reap what you sow. And so generally, according to the Hebrew sages, the one who considers the poor who lives with that sort of a heart and awareness of other people's needs, generally that kind of a person can expect that God will show kindness to her or to him. However, the book of Job and the book of Ecclesiastes are great reminders that it doesn't always work out that way, that there are exceptions 
to the rule. The other thing we need to remember, and this is very important, is that David here in the Psalter is not writing to a non-believing secular audience. David is writing this to God's people, to the household of faith, to the Jewish people. And within the faith community, those who uphold their end of the covenant, which was to love the Lord their God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love their neighbors as themselves, those who upheld their end of the covenant could expect that the Lord, that Yahweh would bless them and that he would keep them and protect them and take care of them. And as Christians, on this side of the cross, we can expect the same thing. As we love God and as we love people as he commands us to, as we live in obedience to his word, we can expect that generally speaking, God is going to bless us and keep us. Galatians 6, 7 through 10 talks about this. Paul there writes, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So he says, and let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are are of the household of faith. So David begins this prayer for a time of sickness with this blessing that he's pronouncing over the considerate person. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. Now in verses 4 through 10, David's going to move on. And in this section, David is going to describe for us a past prayer for help. And this is the second section. Here in this section, David is now going to recall that former sickness that he dealt with, that he thought was going to kill him, and he's going to tell us what he prayed to God when he was in that that, uh, situation, when he was in trouble before. And he begins his prayer like this in verse 4. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. So here's the prayer. He says, Be gracious to me, or merciful is another word for that. Be gracious or merciful by healing me. So would you please, God, be gracious and merciful? Would you heal me from my sickness? And then he tells us why. Why does he need that? He says, because I've sinned. So so that's the the content of the prayer there in verse 4. Be gracious and merciful, O Lord. Heal me because I've sinned. Tragically, a lot of people don't understand who God is, and they think that God is looking for people who have it all together. Honestly, a lot of times we even think of all these Bible characters. We think of people like the great King David, and we're like, man, if I could ever just sort of arrive spiritually like that and have it all together, then maybe God would be interested in a person like me. Then maybe God could use a person like me. And, and so a lot of people, they kind of look at their own life, and maybe they are sick like David is here in Psalm 41. Maybe they have a debilitating disease, and they think to themselves, what could I ever do for God? Why would God ever be interested in a person like me? Or maybe just more generally speaking, they're just needy. They, 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 they have a lot of needs right now. They're not in a position where they have much to give. They're just in a place where all they can do is kind of receive. And so they think to themselves, I have nothing to offer to God. Maybe if I can kind of figure some things out in my life, maybe if I can kind of get things under control, then maybe I could consider going and trying to have a relationship with God. 
So they kind of almost think about it like God's got a startup company and he's hiring for his team. And he's just assessing, like, what do you bring to the table? And if you really have something awesome to offer, then God says, yeah, you got a spot. But if they don't have anything, they think God would want nothing to do with me. And for every one person that thinks of God that way, probably five or ten people think of God this way. They look at God and they say, God would never want a person like me because of my sinfulness. Certainly God is interested in righteous people and moral people. But I'm not that kind of a person. I've done plenty of things in my life that I'm ashamed of and that I know God is not happy with. So maybe someday I can kind of clean up my act a little bit. Maybe someday I can... can, Stop living in that sin for 30 days or maybe three months or maybe a year of just kind of not living in that particular sin that I keep struggling with. And maybe once I've sort of cleaned things up, then I can come to God and offer myself to him. And then maybe God will be happy. Maybe someday I can, sometimes people think this way even, maybe someday I can get it together like those people over there. I wasn't pointing at anybody specifically in here. Like this is the righteous side of the room and you're all the heathens over here. But We kind of like, we have people, right, that we look at. Maybe it is pastors or different spiritual people. We think, if if I could get to that level, then maybe God would be interested in having a relationship with me. But I just love that David didn't think that way. He was so biblical. David didn't think like that. He was in bad shape in Psalm 41. And kind of in bad shape in a a few different ways. On one hand, he's on his deathbed sick. So it's not like he can say, hey, God... I'm the guy that you can send out into battle right now and I can fight the enemies. Or God, I'm the guy who can sit and rule with wisdom over your nation. He's laying on his deathbed and he has nothing to bring to God. And what's more, he's also in Psalm 41 painfully aware of his own sinfulness. He says, because I have sinned. He knows that he has sinned against the Lord. However, David still comes to God and he begs God to be gracious and merciful. He's not afraid to come to God. And the reason for that is because David knew God's character. If you go back in the Old Testament, which David was familiar with, when God revealed himself to Moses at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 34, here's what the Lord says to Moses. This is verse 6 of Exodus 34. We read, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. So here's God speaking. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That was who God revealed himself to be to his people. A God who was merciful, a God who was gracious. This was so different than the other gods in the ancient Near East who were vindictive and they were angry and people felt like they had to offer certain things to them at exactly the right times or Maybe Thor would throw a lightning bolt or a giant hammer at them or something. And and the Lord, the real God of the universe, the creator of everything says, I am the Lord and I am gracious and I'm merciful. And sure, I do get angry at sin. I do get angry when people that are created in my image hurt other people that are created in my image that I love. I do get angry, but guess what? I'm slow to get angry. I don't fly off the handle. I'm controlled. And even my anger is strategic and it's intentional. But this is the baseline assumption that God's people had about him. That God was gracious, that he was merciful, that he was patient toward his own. And so David, even though he's not in a place to give God much of anything, 
In fact, what does David deserve? David deserves God's anger and wrath. That didn't matter. Because David knew that deep within the heart of God was a disposition toward his people of mercy and grace and forgiveness. And so David comes to the Lord and he asks for exactly that. Now it's interesting that David here prays for physical healing, right? He says, heal me. And then he tells us why he needs it. For I have sinned against you. See, David in Psalm 41 here, he sees a connection between his sin and the sickness that he's dealing with. Now, this is the third psalm just in the first 41 chapters where we've seen something like this. And we've talked about this at length in previous sermons. It was Psalm 6, Psalm 38, and now again in Psalm 41. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this right now because we've covered it. But what we've learned together in the Psalter is that sin, and here's the key kind of operating word here, don't lose this, sin can lead to sickness, or to put it differently, our sicknesses in life, some of them, can be related to sin. But it certainly isn't always related to our own sin, and probably, normally, it's not. But I would say this, that whenever we are sick, and I'm not talking about like a scratchy throat or a runny nose type of a sick, when we're really sick, or maybe we've got a a serious illness or something, What we should at least do as believers is we should take that as an opportunity to just pause and be introspective, to sort of search out our own hearts and our own lives and say, maybe this could be related to something going on in my life. Maybe this is somewhat of a wake-up call and the Lord is trying to get my attention and cause me to deal with some things that are spiritual within my life. We should pray the prayer of David in Psalm 139, 23, and 24, where David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. We should always open ourselves up to that level of introspection, asking the Holy Spirit, show me, is there sin in my life that needs to be dealt with? Nevertheless, in this case, David understands his particular sickness to be related to his sin, and so he does exactly the right thing with it. He asks God for forgiveness. And as Proverbs 28, 13 reminds us, that if we conceal our transgressions, we will not prosper. But if we confess and forsake them, we will obtain mercy. And what we see in this psalm is that David experiences that promise in his life. As David's prayer continued to unfold, He opens up to the Lord now about his enemies in verses 5 through 8. David writes this. He says, My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. This is like so terrible. This is insane that David is in this place where he is sick and ready to die. And he's got people that are coming and paying him a visit. And they're saying these kinds of awful things about him. Right? I mean, it's, it's bad enough when you're really, really sick. Like you've been laid out for multiple days or even longer and you're just feeling terrible. And you can't do anything for yourself. You hardly even want to speak. But then to add this on top of that, like somebody comes and visits you 
and they just say all sorts of terrible things to you, that's like just pouring salt into an open wound. It reminds me a little bit of Job's wife. You'll remember that story of Job, that Job, he, he experiences just unthinkable suffering in the opening chapters of that book. And his ten children die. And his servants are killed by invaders from the outside. And his business is destroyed. And his wealth is taken away. And then he gets really, really sick. And he's covered from head to toe in these painful, terrible boils. And he's actually taking uh, broken pieces of pottery. And he's scratching all these boils to just try to pop them to get some release. And some relief. And he's in this state of just abject misery. And his great comforter, his wife, looks at him and says, why don't you just curse God and die? And I'm sure Job's like, thanks, babe. Like, that's the best you've got for me. Thanks. But that's kind of where David's at here. He's, he's miserable. He's suffering. And then people are coming around him and they're speaking words of malice. They're trying to hurt him. And it's crazy because they're actually impatient with, their, with his death. They're saying like, when's he going to die already? Why is he still fighting? He should just give up. When's he going to die? In verse 6, it describes his interactions with them when they come to visit him. It says that they utter empty words. That can also be translated that they speak falsely. So what a lot of uh, uh, Bible commentators think is going on there is that they're coming and they're visiting. And they're doing what you're supposed to do when you visit people who are sick in the hospital. As a pastor, I've done tons of hospital visits. And you don't walk in and try to hurt people. Right? You walk in as a pastor and you go in there and you're trying to comfort people and share words of comfort and be an encouragement. And a lot of commentators think that what's going on is the people that are visiting David, they're coming into his hospital room, so to speak, and they're saying all the right things. They're saying words of comfort. Hey, man, you're going to make it. Hey, we're really rooting for you. Hey, everybody's praying for you. And yet then when they walk out, they share their true feelings. See, these are, these are, these are words of... Uh, empty words as he puts it they're speaking falsely they're saying one thing but they mean another and when they leave it says that they spread terrible updates about him to other people in verse 7 when they leave he can actually even hear them whispering in the hallways so again he he hears what they say when they're in the room with them we are praying for you we love you david we hope you get better david and then they walk out of the room and he can actually hear them whispering in the hallways and he realizes there that they actually think the worst about him. The second, the second that they leave his room, it's like they, they pull out the phone and they make a phone call to some other people. They say, oh my gosh, he's in terrible shape. This dude is not going to make it through the night. Game over for David. Ha 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 ha. That's what verse 8 tells us. But as hard as all of that is, the worst part and the hardest part actually comes in verse 9. Here's what David writes in verse 9. He says, Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. David's close friend, or at least the person that he thought was his close friend, has now actually turned against him. He's lifted his heel. It's an idiom that, that maybe refers to the idea that if I'm your friend, I'm face to face with you. But if I become a defector and I turn to the enemies, I walk away from you and you see my heel as I'm walking away. So this person who was a friend has turned his heel against David. He's actually betrayed him and gone over to the other side and joined all of these people who are rooting for David's death. When you think about it, what could hurt worse than having your close friend, somebody that you love, somebody that you trust, actually turn against you and become an enemy? 
And some of you have been there. Maybe you were betrayed by somebody that you loved and somebody that you trusted. Maybe it was a spouse or a parent or a business partner or like David, a close friend. But poor David is there. And to make matters worse, it's not just that he's betrayed by this close friend, but he's betrayed at the exact moment that he is in his most desperate hour of need. It really is the climax of the conflict of Psalm 41. David is lower than low. He's deathly ill. People are around him. They're kind of cheering on the grim reaper, like, make it tonight, take him away. And now even his closest friends are abandoning him and they're joining forces with the enemy. What does David do with these hurtful things that people are saying and doing? Well, this is huge. What David does in verses 4 through 10 is he frames their words inside of his relationship with God. If you notice, verse 10, he's going to go on and begin that sentence the same way he began verse 4. O Lord, be gracious to me. He says it at the beginning, then he has all these horrible things that they're saying and doing, and he comes back around to the idea of who God is and what God can do for him. So he frames the entire terrible narrative between or inside of his relationship with God. And this is so important. This is a key for processing hurtful words of other people in a healthy way. Because the most important thing about you is not what they say about you, it's what God says about you. And if you can keep that in mind, you'll be able to process even the worst sorts of things that people say and do against you. David knows who God is. He knows his God is gracious and merciful and forgiving. He knows God's promises, that God promises to stand with the vulnerable and the needy. He knows that God promises to be there for those who are upright in heart and who have integrity. And so regardless of all that's being done by these evil people around him, David can come back and be grounded in the reality of who God is and grounded in the reality of what God has promised for him. And so he asks God, would you just deliver on your promises? Would you be gracious and merciful to me? And again, the grace that he's specifically requesting is grace to heal him. He says, and raise me up that I may repay them. Now, there's a really important reminder before we move into the conclusion of this. And the reminder for us, I think, as Christians is this. This section reminds us that even within the faith community, so let me just make this for us, even within the church, even among the people of God, people can have the unfortunate and the painful experience of not being able to find even a single person who will be a neighbor to them, who will empathize with them, who will suffer alongside them, who will be a friend to them in the midst of their suffering. David here is in such a desperate place. He's in his hour of need. And more than anything, David just needs a friend that'll be there, that'll empathize and love him and pray for him and speak good words and true words over him in this sickbed. And guess what? He can't even find one. And it's so heartbreaking. And we are the church. We are the people of God. And we have to make sure that our hearts are open to people in their times of need and in their times of suffering and that we, as the people of God, are considerate of them. Because God forbid that our actions or that our words just add to their misery like what was happening for David. 
Galatians 6.2 says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. But I do love this. Even though everyone else had forsaken David, and he had no earthly advocate for him, the Lord never abandoned him. And he'll never abandon us. The third section ends this beautiful psalm with thanksgiving and praise. This is the final shift that takes place. And David in verse 11 now is going to look to the evidence that God's favor is with him. Here's what he says starting in verse 11. By this I know that you delight in me. So by this I know that you delight in me. This is going to be the evidence that God delights in him. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. So the evidence to David that God loved him and that God delighted in him is that David's sickness does not lead to death here in Psalm 41. His enemies do not get the perverse delight that they were hoping for in seeing this righteous man perish over this sickness. Instead, God upheld David, meaning that God, to use the language of verse 10, raised him up, brought him back from his sickbed. So here's the scene again. David's enemies are sort of circling around David, like hawks that are circling around in the sky over an animal that's about to die. They're just waiting to pounce. And that's the scene that is going on here. And they're mocking him, and they're ridiculing him, and even his friends have turned on him. They've joined the hawks, circling around, waiting for him to die. Everybody believed God had given up on David. This was it. God's done with him, and God's moving on. But God proved that that wasn't true. God demonstrated or proved that he had not given up on David by raising him from his sickbed. Now, some of you already know this. But verse 9 is picked up in John chapter 13, and it's words that Jesus speaks and applies to himself. And this happens in John chapter 13, in the upper, upper room on the night that Christ is betrayed. And it happens as Jesus, our Lord, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one true God, as he takes the form of the most humble servant, and he goes around and he washes the feet of the disciples, demonstrating love and friendship and service and humility. And he washes the feet of the twelve. And so that means that who was included in that foot washing? Judas himself. Here's John 13, 15 through 19. Jesus says, For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Judas was a lot like David's enemies here and actually was a lot like David's close friend here. Judas felt like the writing was on the wall. Jesus's enemies were circling up and they were gathering around him 
And they were speaking evil of him and they were plotting his destruction. They were whispering in the hallway, so to speak. And Judas, although loved by Jesus, would become a defector. But just as verse 9 was on the lips of Jesus, so could verse 10 and 11 as well. Jesus would go down into death for the sins of his people, but God would raise him up. And by this, Jesus would know that God delighted in him. Just as God not abandoning David to death in his hour of need was evidence that God delighted in David, so too the fact that God did not leave Jesus in the tomb is the evidence that God the Father delighted in God the Son and that the work that Jesus came to accomplish on the cross, namely paying for your sins and mine, it was accomplished. God was pleased by it. The resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate vindication that Jesus was loved by the Father, that he was delighted in by the Father, and that it was the enemies of Jesus who were on the wrong side of history. Romans 1, 1 through 4 says this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. And was declared to be the Son of God in power. So Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power. According to the spirit of holiness. By his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul is saying that by raising Jesus from the dead. God was saying something about him. The Father was making a declaration about Jesus of Nazareth that this was not just a good man, this was not just a prophet, this was God's one and only Son. And his death on the cross was not meant by God to show God's displeasure with Jesus. In fact, it was meant by God to bring about our forgiveness and then the resurrection of Jesus showed that God was pleased by him. Now, the end of verse 12 is very important because David there sets out for all of us the end result of God extending his life. God extended his life for a reason. And it was not just so that David could have a few more retirement years just to sit around and relax. God extended David's earthly life, David says, and then he set me in your presence forever. When God raised David up and saved him from dying, David saw that healing as an opportunity to just continue to be with God. Now, forever is a very interesting word because it can in the Hebrew mean, and oftentimes does, just for the rest of his life, the rest of his earthly life. In some places, it clearly means something more than that. Forever, kind of more how we think of it, like going on even beyond our earthly life. And it's tricky because the Jews had an underdeveloped understanding of the afterlife. They didn't have as much light about this as we did. And so for David, the only absolute certainty that he had that he could continue in God's presence would be if God gave him a few more earthly years. And God did. And David now gets to enjoy God's presence more. But family, for us who are on this side of the cross... We know what forever actually means. Because when it comes to Jesus, we know that his resurrection means that he right now is in the presence of the Father and that he will be alive literally 
forever. And what's more, we know that for every single one of us who put our own faith in Jesus, we will share in his resurrection and we too will be in the presence of God forever. There will be no end to that. We'll be with him forever. And so the knowledge of that leads David in verse 13 to a doxology. It's a concluding verse or line of praise to the Lord. And how could David not end in worship and praise when he reflected on God's mercy toward him? He says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. This closing doxology calls for God's praise to go on forever without end. This is an appropriate close to this prayer. Now this verse, verse 13, could have been added by a later editor, and some commentators think it was. Maybe the person who actually assembled all of the Psalms together into these five books. And if so, the editor would have added that verse to bring a fitting conclusion to not just Psalm 41, but to the entire first book of the Psalter. But Psalm 41 could have just as easily been chosen with that original ending written by David and been chosen precisely because it had that ending. And that was an appropriate way to end, again, not just Psalm 41, but the entire first book of the Psalter. To wrap up book one with a concluding word of worship and praise to the Lord. Well, we'll never know for sure. But here's what we do know for sure. Our God is gracious and merciful, and his heart is ready to forgive, even now. And we know that even though David was raised up from his sickbed, he did ultimately physically die. But Jesus, the greater David, would enter into death once and for all and would come out on the other side. And through his resurrection, we know that Jesus solved the problem of sin and death once and for all. And so the evidence that God delights in us is not in whether he heals us of every single earthly malady or sickness or illness that we have. Because sometimes he does and we rejoice and sometimes he doesn't. But family, we can still rejoice. Because the evidence that God delights in us is not our physical healing. The evidence that God delights in us is the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. Because that, again, proved that God the Father delights in the Son. And the Bible tells us that when we put our faith in Jesus, we become children of God too. And so the same delight that God has in Jesus is the delight that God has in all of his children who come to him through faith in Jesus Christ. And if we're children, we're loved. If we're children, we're delighted in. We put a smile on God's face. And if we are children, then we are set in God's presence forever. Therefore, we pray, like David, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Let's pray together.